We are going to be in Hebrews um, chapter 4 this morning, so you can make your way there, and I'll put it on the overhead too, to rescue you if you forgot a copy of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at just the last part of that chapter, starting in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, I'm going to read it, and you can follow along. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you're anything like me, you love to hear stories and testimonies of the way that the Word of God has powerfully and effectively penetrated somebody's heart and done just a miraculous work. And there's stories like that all throughout the Bible. And history is filled with a myriad of examples. And we probably all have our favorites. I love the story of St. Augustine. He was one of the greatest theologians in the first century, and he lived a very licentious life and had a real problem with lust, and he was wrestling against the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He knew the gospel. He knew what Christ's demands were on his life, but he wasn't ready. He didn't want to forsake his life of, of uh, sexual gratification, to be honest with you. He wasn't ready. He said, yes, Lord, yes, I'll come, but not yet. And one day he was in a garden in Italy, and he heard some children playing outside, and he heard the, the refrain over and over, tole, tole. In that language, it meant take up and read, take up and read. And he looked down on a stand next to him in the garden, and there was the scroll that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And he picked it up and opened it and found the place in verse 13 and 14 where it says, not with sex and with orgies and with drunkenness, uh, but come out of the darkness into the light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And he was converted instantly and gave his life to Christ. There's some strange stories, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon was testing out the acoustics of the Metropolitan Tabernacle when it was being built, and he walked in in the middle of the day, they were still under construction, and he just cried out a verse from the New Testament. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there was a worker up in the chandelier fastening um, some, of the, some of the boards up there, and he heard that and was instantly converted. That's amazing, isn't it? But one of my favorite stories comes from the 19th century from a man whose name was Emilia Caliente. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I'm probably just saying the word for meat in Spanish or something. But anyway, anyway his, name was, his name was Emile Caliente. He was born in the uh, 19th century near the very end. And I think that's right. I think I'm getting it right. He was born in France, and he was a very, very intelligent young man. And everyone recognized that about him. And he was driven by his early education to embrace naturalism. If you don't know what that means, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Anything supernatural, he rejected. God, the church, religion, the Bible, 
He was very antagonistic and hostile toward those things, wanted no part of it, didn't believe in them, didn't believe in miracles or anything. And he grew up, you know, believing that and embracing that, and yet he was very intelligent. And he soon rose above his peers in his education as a very avid philosopher. He was a very avid reader. He, he rose the ranks, uh, just in intelligence, and everyone just esteemed him. Um, but his education was put on hold because he was sent to the First World War. In fact, he fought on the front lines of battle and saw some horrible things. His best friend and he were having a conversation. His best friend was telling him about how much he missed and loved his mother. And his best friend was shot with a you know, bullet, took him right in the head, right in front of him. And he never forgot that. That haunted him. And then another night, he was shot in combat and was taken to a hospital. And it took him nine months. He fought for his life. And he finally recovered. And after he was discharged, he re-entered, um, resumed his graduate studies, but he was never the same after that. The books didn't move him the way that they used to move him. He lacked motivation. He searched in vain all his philosophical literature for hope, meaning, purpose, and he couldn't find any. He was just a defeated man. And he was exhausted, and he needed rest. This is what he said from his diary about his time in the war. Check this out. The inadequacies of my views on the human situation overwhelmed me. During long night watches in the foxholes, I had been longing, I must say, however strange it may sound, I had been longing for a book that would understand me. But I knew of no such book. So I decided to secretly prepare one for my own private use. As I went on reading for my philosophy courses, I would clip passages that would speak to my condition at the time. And then I would carefully copy them down into a leather-bound pocketbook that I would always carry with me. The quotations would lead me, as it were, from fear and anguish through a variety of intervening stages to supreme utterances of release and jubilation. That sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? That was what he fully intended to do. Well, he completed his precious book, and he describes the beautiful sunny day in which he went out into his backyard, went through the gate, went into the garden, sat down under a tree, and began to pour eagerly over all his work. But very soon, he was met with profound disappointment because uh, the passages that once moved him, whatever condition or state of mind he was in, didn't move him anymore. They didn't hold any power over him at all. They were dead words on a page, just lifeless ink. They didn't comfort him. They didn't convict him. They didn't inspire him. They didn't do anything. So everything in his, his mind was lost. Complete failure. He closed the book put it in his pocket, leaned back on the tree in despair. And at that very moment, his wife was coming back from downtown and she walked through the front gate and she had a Bible in her hand and she was about to apologize to him for having it because he had strictly forbidden anything to do with religious literature ever being in his home. In fact, he was 23 at the time that this happened and up to that time, he had never seen a Bible, touched a Bible or read a Bible, ever. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're Americans, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around that. Well, maybe not so hard today, but back in that day, it would have been. And so she began to apologize and say that some French evangelist handed it to her, uh, and she was going to throw it away, and he said, no, 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 no. And he ran, and he seized it out of her hands, and he took off running, and this is what he said. Check this out. I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced, he said, upon the Beatitudes. That's the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know. Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, the first sermon Jesus ever preached. He chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read, now out loud, with an indescribable warmth surging within me. I could not find words to express my awe and my wonder. 
And suddenly the realization dawned upon me, this was the book that understood me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I had attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive in me. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> Many of you could probably bear witness to a similar thing happening when the, you first came under the power and the influence of the Word of God and it impacted you. You might echo with Emily, uh, or however you say his name, that finally a book that understands me, the book that understands me, the book that understands you, the book that understands everyone, the Bible. And I want to talk to you today about something uh, that we can't afford to forget or neglect or ignore. I want to talk to you about the Word of God. And I don't honestly remember um, preaching just a sermon dedicated exclusively to the Bible since we planted this church, and I've been wanting to forever. We can't forget the Word of God. We can't forget it as a church. We certainly can't forget it as individuals. Um, without this book, guys, I, don't, I have absolutely nothing to say to you apart from this. Nothing. I have no inspiration. I have no clever intuition. I have nothing to say to you apart from God's Word. And nothing that I ever say holds any authority or weight to it if it's divorced from this. This is our source. This is our power. This is the wisdom that we put ourselves under. So... Uh, here's the outline. This is some reasons that we need to expose ourselves to God's Word. We need to do it as a church, but listen, if this is the only exposure you ever get to Scripture, you are selling yourself short. I really want to make that case today, that this book demands our attention, and it shouldn't suffer from neglect. It, it, it should be something that you place yourself under often, habitually, consistently, that you, you, you place yourself willingly under the, the power of it, saturate your life with it, you build your life on this. And here's why. There are things that only Scripture can provide that you need, and here's the outline. One, we need a powerful tool. Secondly, we need a precise instrument. And third, we need a personal Savior. So here we go. I know we're, we're taught this from, from our youth. I was. Don't talk about yourself. You parents ever tell your children that? Don't talk about yourself. You'll quote the proverb, let the lips of another praise you and not your own. I was always saying that to my kids because my mom was always saying it to me. There's just something wrong about hearing somebody brag about themselves, isn't it? We call that gloating and it's just really, it sounds proud and arrogant um, for good reason. But the Bible is an exception to that rule. It is. In fact, the Word of God in multiple places boasts about the power that it has. It, it, it talks about its qualities, how unique they are, how rare they are, how essential they are, and we need to know those properties. Have you guys ever experienced the joys of filling out a job application? Those things are weird, aren't they? They ask you trick questions, you know? They ask you things like this, what are your greatest strengths? Doesn't that just feel wrong to answer that? I mean, we're, we're taught to be humble and, and to be modest and conservative. And here's this application saying, hey, what do you have to offer our company? What's your greatest strengths? What's your most notable accomplishments? You just feel strange answering that. I always did. Um, what experiences qualify you for this position? And then they ask you for three references. In other words, give us the names of three people that will brag on you. That's what it is. And we feel, I've always felt awkward answering that. But you know what? The Bible answers all of that. It talks about itself all the time. And the Bible, listen, unlike us, it never exaggerates. It never embellishes. It never uh, overcompensates for some hidden weakness. It doesn't because it doesn't have any. And that's what the Bible does, and especially it's what it does in this passage. So 
What does the Bible say about itself? Well, all over the Bible, there's these metaphors, analogies, pictures. The Bible says that it's a hammer. It's a hammer that breaks a hard heart into pieces, right? So that the, the medicine of the gospel can flow in and regenerate and save. It says that it's um, milk that nourishes and, and strengthens and builds up. It says that it's a mirror that reflects your true condition so you can deal with the sin in your heart and go to Christ. It says that it's a seed that germinates and sprouts up new life. And this is one of my favorites. It says that it's fire that purifies and purges. But this passage says something else about the Word of God. It says that it's like a knife. It's like a sword that pierces and divides and lays open. And I want to talk about that this morning. So the first thing it says is this. Point number one is that the Bible is powerful. That's what it says. Check it out. Verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's referencing the Old Testament, the failure of the Israelites, under Moses' leadership to enter into the promised land. They disobeyed. They didn't believe God's promise. They didn't believe. It was as simple as that. And he said, so they didn't enter my rest. But you, the Hebrew Christians he was writing to, He's saying, you strive to enter my rest. And he says, for the word of God is living and active. And let's just hit the pause button there. It's living and active. Do you know what that's saying about this book? How is it that uh, Emile could say this book understands him? Listen, here's the secret of the Bible, guys. It's alive. It is a living book. It's energetic. It's active. It's crawling around. It's moving. It knows you. It sees you. It can read you and exegete you and analyze you and question you and probe you and understand you. No other book can do that. No other literature can do that. The Bible is alive. It has eyes. It's, you know, like Moses in the Old Testament, during the plagues, he threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh for proof that God, the God of the Hebrews was with him. You remember what happened? It was a dead stick, right? He threw it down and what happened? It became alive. It turned into a snake probably a cobra, and swallowed up all of Pharaoh's magician staffs they threw down. The Word of God is like that. It's living, it's moving, it's active. It's really powerful imagery because when you put yourself under the influence of Scripture, you have to know that this book is alive because the one who authors it is, is attending it. He's within it, empowering it, strengthening it, giving it power. And so it knows you. It's able to follow you and exegete you and understand you in a way that no other book or no other writing can. It's not just ink on a page. These are the words of the living God. And listen, the Bible also calls itself the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6.17. So that tells us exactly why this book is so powerful. It's alive. It has life because the Holy Spirit um, is present within it. It's the sword of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active when we put ourselves under this word. That's an active power directly from a member of the Trinity. That's incredible. No other, you don't know any other document that has the power of the Holy Spirit? None. I don't care the best Christian book you have ever read, apart from the scripture that it quotes, can't boast what this passage boasts about the Bible. Can't do it. It's alive. It's crawling. It has a pulse. One person said that the Bible is alive, not so much because it brings life, but because it is full of life. That's why it understands us, because the one who created us and designed us wrote this. He's the author. So the Bible's not stationary. It's, it's not immobile. It's, it's mobile. It follows. It goes with us. It doesn't just exist. It contains a power for those like us who expose ourselves to it. It's what one of my friends 
One of my professors at seminary wrote, he said, no other book has this effect. It rebukes us. It chastens us. It comforts us. It guides us. It gives light to our path. It preaches to us. It restrains our foot from evil. It frowns on us when we sin. It warms our heart with assurance. It encourages us with its promises. It stimulates our faith. It builds us up. It ministers to our every need. It is alive and dynamic. Phil Johnson, one of my friends and and professors and my employer in California, actually wrote that. And you know, you've seen this. There's all, I don't want to spend all day talking about all the different verses. I want to really, I want to focus on Hebrews 4, but you know, all the places the Bible says, uh, your word, Psalm 119 says, I think, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A little bit later, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? I mean, let me ask you a question. For young men, all the, all the hormones that are surging and all the images flashing on social media, how in the world can you combat that? That's the question that thousands of years ago the psalmist wrote. How can a young man keep his way clean? And what's the answer? What's the power? By taking heed according to your word. That's it. That's a power that only the Bible has. No accountability partner has that. Covenant eyes doesn't have that power. Only Scripture because the Holy Spirit lives and breathes through it. And there's many other passages. I have stored up your word or treasured up your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. And there's many others. Here's the other thing uh, that it says. There's a, there's a word here in verse 12. The Word of God is living. That's zoe in Greek. And then it says it's active. Energos. Does that sound familiar to you in English? Energy. It's got energy. It's like buzzing. It's, it's, it's active. It's electric. You could almost say it's dangerous. It's like static. You touch this thing, you come under its power. It's not powered by a Duracell battery, though. It's powered by, again, the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's able to comfort. It's able to counsel. It's able to convert. It's able to correct. It's able to convict. Only the Bible can make all of those boast about itself because it's the sword of the Spirit. It has a dynamic that operates. You know, Jeremiah chapter 23 says this. Jeremiah was timid. He didn't want to go to the ministry God called him to, and he's vacillating and arguing with God. He says, you got the wrong kid. And God reminds Jeremiah, he says, listen, I've given you my word. And is my word not like the, not a fire? He says, is my word not like a fire? Is it not like a rock that smashes things to pieces that stand in its way and that oppose it? I love that verse. Think how Jeremiah must have felt. Oh yeah, I've got I've got a nuclear warhead here. I don't have anything to worry about. I've just got to be the messenger that gets the, the, the food to the table without spilling it. That's all. And that's what I feel like as a preacher. I don't have any power. I'm not clever enough or wise. I don't have any ingenuity or secret sauce to help people grow. It's only as I take this and unveil it and unleash it in your life. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said that the Bible is like a lion. It was Martin Luther that said this too. He said, the Bible is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. All you have to do is just let it out of the cage. And it will do what it's designed to do, right? You got, there's some fascinating things about lions. Do you know male lions don't hunt? Do you know that? I know there's a deeper argument there. The female lion is just, I don't know, I know I'm not going there. That's another sermon on complementarianism. Not today. But male lions don't hunt. You know why? They don't have to. They take whatever they want. They eat whatever they want. Just get out of their way. And the Bible... I know that's maybe a negative way to view Scripture, but Scripture will always, Isaiah 55 says, accomplish the purpose for which God sends it. Man, I love just unleashing the Bible and see the impact that it has on people. It's incredible. The people that come under its dominion and then surrender to it, and then their life flourishes. 
It's not that it's handcuffing you, it's liberating you. It's cutting the chains off of your hands, right? That you've been held captive to all these lies and the Bible comes and speaks the truth. And Jesus said, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And Jesus believed in the power of Scripture. That's why He came preaching it. So it's living, it's active, it's effective. And I just got to tell you a little bit, I, I, you know, we talked about living on mission. We, we did a four-week series on that, and I'm trying to help you be evangelist, to speak the gospel in thoughtful and meaningful ways to the culture that we live in so that they understand it. Um, and I don't want to ever give you the wrong impression. You listen to people, you hear, you hear the wounds that you can speak the gospel truth into. Um, and I know sometimes we frame arguments, but I want to remind you, those things are all important. But at the same time, the only thing that has power to convert anybody is, is the truth of the Bible. It's Scripture. So when you, you get to the point where you're talking to somebody who's an unbeliever, you cultivated that relationship with them, there's trust you're ready to unleash the lion, do it. Trust in Scripture. It has much more compelling um, and effective and active arguments than we do. I think sometimes we feel overwhelmed. I had a class in seminary called Evangelism and Apologetics. And look, I could, you know I'm a dumb redneck. I'm not the sharpest knife in a drawer by any stretch. I like to read. I like to write. But, but I'm not very sharp, okay? And that class, I left it feeling very intimidated. I mean, I'm hearing all these cosmological, teleological, transcendental epistemology. It's like, well, wait a minute. When I encounter this, this cultured, sophisticated unbeliever, I, I got to say, what? What is it again? And, and now, it's not the class's fault. That was just a, a portion of the class. If we're not careful, we fall into that. I think we have to talk about carbon dating and fossil records and the second law of thermodynamics, and we've got to counter every argument they have. Guys, I want to give you some relief. You don't have to do all that. If you can, that's great. There's a place for that, okay? But the greatest and most powerful thing you can do is just share Scripture with people. Man, that's the power. That's got the sharp edge that's going to be necessary to penetrate their heart and cut them. And the context of this proves it because do you know what the context of this entire two chapters is, three and four? It's the rebellion of the Israelites in the Old Testament. They would not believe God's promises. You remember what happened? God said, I'm going to send you into the promised land, the land of Canaan. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's yours. Go take it. Dispossess it. I'm going to drive out the inhabitants, and it's yours. You're the apple of my eye. I love you, and you're my people, and this, you're my treasure. I'm going to gift this to you. You don't have to lift a finger. Just go take it. And the Israelites sent some spies over, Remember? Twelve spies. Ten came back and said, uh-uh, we ain't going over there. No way. The sons of Anakin are there. There's giants. We're like grasshoppers. That land will consume us. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, no way. This is ours. God promised it. His word says it. He told us that he's going to give it to us. We don't have to lift a sword or a finger. Let's go take it. And the people that night, it says they wept and they lamented and they complained and they said, we need a new leader. Why did you take us out of Egypt to scatter our bodies in the wilderness? We can't do it. And God was angry with them. You remember this? He was angry and he said, because you didn't believe me, your bodies will be scattered in the wilderness. And the, the author here is reminding us of that promise and he's saying they didn't believe. They didn't believe the good news. Now, if you go back and you, and you think, well, what did they need? They, they just needed more evidence, really, didn't they? I mean, didn't the Israelites just need to see living proof that God was with them? Now, think about this for a minute. What had they already seen? Well, I mean, the Red Sea parted. I mean, that might be effective, right? I mean, give me some evidence here. Okay, I'll part of a living body of water for you. 
And uh, there was the ten plagues thing. That was pretty important. They were all there. Eyewitnesses. They saw it all. Uh, They saw all those miracles. They saw how God smashed all the false gods of Egypt and let the entire nation just wrecked, right? What else did they see? Well, let's see. Bread from heaven came every morning, except on Sunday, just to prove it was God and not nature, right? Uh, These dumb quail (laughs) came down to the ground and floated within a a bat-hitting distance so they could hit them and have meat. Uh, there was this pillar of cloud at night because it was cold in the wilderness. And there was a, cl- uh, a, a cloud of shade during the day. And they were there 40 years. And the Bible says that their sandals didn't wear out. I can't even buy good flip-flops that last me a year. They were there 40 years. Their sandals didn't wear out. Their threads didn't, didn't wear thin. I mean, I think that's pretty much evidence that God's with them, right? So didn't they need more evidence? No. What did they need? They needed to believe the word that God already gave them. It was powerful enough then and it's still powerful enough now. So when you're talking to people about the gospel and about Christ, all you need to do is just unleash the lion. That's the greatest power in the world. Just preach the gospel. Say the Bible says Christ died for sinners. He absorbed the wrath of God so that we don't have to face judgment. He rose from the dead. He welcomes and invites all sinners to come to him for life and forgiveness with repentance and brokenness. That's the most powerful thing on the planet. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that. So use your arguments when it's necessary, but remember the nuclear warhead, okay? Remember the sharpest instrument in the world is is the Word. So that's the first point. It's powerful. Here's the second point. It's precise. We need precision, don't we? Say, what do you need? What do you mean by that? Well, now remember, I'm talking to us about exposing, not just using the Bible and evangelism for other people, but using it on ourselves. Because guys, listen. I'm going to talk about this in an upcoming series about spiritual blindness. We all have blind spots in our life. Do you know that? (laughs) We know we have blind spots. We just don't know where they are. We'd fix them, right? It's like that thing in the rearview mirror we can't quite see. Um, We have blind spots. There's things we don't see. There's things that we ignore. There's things we neglect. We need to put ourselves under the power and the influence of the Word of God because it is the, listen, it's the only instrument that says it's sharp enough and effective enough to penetrate. Listen to what it says here. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, and then check this out, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. Now listen, if we're not careful, this passage sounds a little bit militant, doesn't it? He's talking about swords, he's talking about hacking, cutting, dismemberment, laying you open, stabbing you, slicing up your organs. It sounds like an instrument of death, execution, punitive justice. And i got to be honest with you, most people who interpret this entire passage say this is a strong rebuke this is a very uh, threatening, looming warning. And I think it, it can be. I mean, the Hebrews is full of warnings. And I do think this would, cata- this would fall into the category of a warning because he's saying strive to enter his rest. But listen, I don't, I don't think that this is a negative passage at all. Not at all. In fact, I read a dissertation this week from a seminary graduate. I don't usually occupy my Saturdays doing that, but I found this one particularly interesting because he was talking about this word for sword in Greek and how it's been so misunderstood by so many people because we instantly, when we, when, we, uh, when we see this, we think of a broadsword. It's a sword, it's big, it's heavy, 
like some Mel Gibson movie, Braveheart or something that you would see, or Lord of the Rings, and somebody's swinging it and they're hacking off heads and destroying the enemies, but that's not really what this word in Greek means. Do you know what it means? Can, you put the, can we put the slide up for this? It's really about a seven-inch dagger that you would wear close to you. In fact, this has surgical. If you read this entire passage, and I'm convinced of it now, this entire passage has the same feel as a surgical procedure that you would witness in the first century. This is not like a broadsword for execution and for punishment at all. This, I believe, is... You can go to the next, you can go to the next one now. This is a, more like a scaffold. A scalpel that a trained, skilled surgeon would use to bring life, uh, to, to, to bring healing and life to somebody who has cancer or who needs organ replacement or something. I don't know how they did all that in the first century, but they've definitely done some archaeological studies and found these instruments that were named this word in Greek. And they were razor sharp, both sides, um, and they were used for cutting open and making very precise surgical incisions. Isn't that interesting? So I don't think at all that this is, that you take away from this, yeah, you're open and you're naked and exposed to God, and what that means is you better be careful, you better watch it. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's saying, look, we need to strive to enter God's rest, and we can't even know our own hearts. Did you guys know the Bible says that? Psalm, well, one of the Psalms says it, Jeremiah 17, 9, says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Who can know? We can't even know our own heart, but you know who can? And who does? God does. And how does He show us what's in our heart? He does it through the Word. And this is like a certain, the imagery here is of a surgical procedure where a person is laid out on maybe a gurney or a, or, or a table. It's not a broadsword at all, it's, it's a surgical instrument, and you're laid out and you need, you're sick, you're dying, and you don't know where it is. You don't know where it's at. You need a trained surgeon. You don't need somebody running there with a broadsword. You know this same word was used? The Old Testament was written in Greek in a book called the Septuagint. And the word that describes uh, the instrument that they used in the book of Joshua to circumcise, same word in Greek. I know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. When they translated that into Greek, that's the word they chose. Let me ask you a question. i got three sons, one on the way. I've watched all of them get circumcised. I can tell you they didn't use a broadsword, nor would I have let them use a broadsword. Okay? Could have been devastating for a lot of reasons. No, they would use a very razor-sharp but precise instrument that they could wield with effectiveness. Not clumsy, not cluttering, not a big war. This, is, this, I believe, is a surgical procedure, and it's really important for us to know this is, this is the operation and the ministry that the Word of God should have in all of our lives, guys. Every one of our lives. Not just corporately like this, because that's what happens. When we preach the Word of God, it penetrates, it slices us open. But when you read the Bible, it's able to read you back. You heard Amelia's testimony. It's able to read you, to understand you, to slice through those layers of hypocrisy and, and catharsis, hard-heartedness. It's able to go, I mean, how do you, how do you separate your, your motives from your actions? Have you guys ever said that? Well, I don't know where my motives, I, don't, I got mixed motive. Of course you do. How do you know whether your motives are good and bad and mixed? You don't. Do you want to know? The Word of God will expose that and show you where you need grace, where you need healing, where you need power, where you need strength. That's what this is about. And you need to know this. This is not the knife of a thief or some... It's not the switchblade of somebody trying to mug you. Listen, this is the razor-sharp blade of a surgeon who knows you, who loves you, 
who calls you his child. Can you imagine doing surgery on one of your own children? If you were called to do that, okay? If you were a surgeon, would you want anybody else other than you, if you were the most skilled surgeon at the top of your game, to be able to do that procedure on your child? I mean, we got to remember this, who the surgeon is. When Sarah and I had our first baby, it was by C-section, and it happened suddenly, and we were barely prepared. Seriously. They kept us in the hospital for two days. They gave Sarah all kinds of drugs. I can't even pronounce. Pitocin and a bunch of other stuff to try and get this baby out. Wouldn't come. So the next thing we know, they came in and threw scrubs at us and said, emergency C-section right away. This baby's big, and, and you need to deliver. And we were like, okay. We had no time to prepare. Um, so the next thing that happened... This is a true story, folks. The next thing that happened is they introduced us to our anesthesiologist. Um, and they called her the gypsy. No joke. She was in her 60s. Nothing against that, okay? But she had been in retirement for two decades. And she had just came out of retirement. She wasn't ready to hang up her scrubs yet. And we were her first case. I kid you not. And they told us all of this. They told us all this. And they called her the gypsy. And her and the regular anesthesiologist... Sarah, God is my witness. They were arguing in front of Sarah where the best incision point was to give her the, uh, what's that thing you get when you're having a baby? Epidural, that's right. And so, and so Gypsy, I'm not even going to tell you her real name, Gypsy insisted this is the right way and the guy walked out of the room. And we're just left there, young, you know, in our early 30s, our first baby, we're still reeling from the news of a C-section. I kid you not, this happened. So Gypsy... <laughs> had to take the rings off all ten of her fingers, thumbs too, to put on the surgical gloves. Just a strange lady, man. It was, I was not, confidence was not exuding in the room for Sarah and I, okay? And so she inserted it and, you know, said, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Sarah laid down on the table and she said, well, um, I can't feel anything on my left side, but I feel everything on my right side. That's not good. Well, that's just 50% of the pain, Right? Turns out the baby was 10, Kirsten is in here. She was 10 pounds, 9 ounces. You want that epidural to work on that one, right? Yeah. And so, you, I kid you not, this is, what the, this is what the surgeon, the anesthesiologist said. She said, well, hon, why don't you turn over so that the medicine can drain? And I'm thinking, go get your boss. Go get your superior. This is, this is not happening. But it all got worked out. But listen, here's my point. Um, this is not some unskilled, run-of-the-muck, a surgeon who didn't pay attention in med school and just wants to be rich. This is a skilled surgeon who knows you and me better than we know ourselves. He's, he's able to slice through joints and marrow and bone and ligaments. And listen, it says, listen to this, it's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Check that out. He's able to slice through every thought. You know an instrument that sharp that can cut your thought? Has the Bible ever had that ministry in your life? You all could testify it has. Have you ever just come to the Word and just been shocked by grace or been convicted at something you said or something you did or just something wrong within you? And the Bible is able to, to slice that open and lay you out naked and open. It's interesting, isn't it? Those words naked and open, it's a Greek word. It's, it's trachea something, but obviously means a neck. And it means somebody had, your opponent has you by the neck and you're open and you're exposed and you're ready to surrender because you've been dominated. That's what, the, that's what the imagery means in Greek. But in this condition, I think it means you're on a surgery table and you're open. Your neck is exposed. You're ready for the knife. Not so you can die, so you can be healed. So that the medicine of grace can wash through your body. God's Word is a surgical knife with eyes. It's the all-seeing eye of God. It's not like the evil eye of Sauron and Lord of the Rings, you know? Something you want to hide from. 
No, it's this that you want. Say, God, see me. Like the psalmist says, search me. Search me and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. And bring healing to me. Restore me. That's, that's what the Word of God's ministry should be like in our life. And that's why whenever we're going to get surgical procedure done, don't you want to hear these words? Oh, don't worry. This guy is at the top of his field. He's the top in the... By the way, you hear that all the time. There can't be that many doctors that are at the top of their field. You ever notice that? You're gonna, one of your relatives is going in for a, a really special procedure, and they're like, this guy's at the top of his field, and he's in you know, northeast Arkansas. And I'm like, what's he doing there if he's at the top of his field? I'm from there. I would stay there if I was at the top of my field. Anyway... Um, that's what you want to hear. Well, this guy, this surgeon's at the top of his field, okay? There's no, nobody that beats him with his surgical skill and his precision. He sees what we don't see. And that word even means that. It means kritikos. You know what word we get from that in Greek? I'm not trying to be a Greek nerd here today. This, just really, this is really uh, electric with, with the imagery of the Greek language here. It means that the Bible is a critic. But it's not that it's always criticizing you. That word it discerns is kritikos. It means it's able to critique you and show you what's really inside of you so that you can take your brokenness with repentance to Christ and ask for mercy and ask for help. That's why Jerry Bridges said this. This is a great quote. I love this. One of my favorites. He said, Don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the Word. Isn't that good? Don't believe everything you think. You're not inspired. You, you know, you're not the Holy Spirit, buddy. <laughs> you need to take all those thoughts captive to the Word of God. Don't trust yourself. So, um, I want to tell you another story, because this is, this is one of my favorites, okay? The Word is, is sharp on both sides, okay? There's no dull place in the Bible. No dull place. It's all sharp, and the very tip of it is able to go through the hardest exterior. In the days of George Whitfield. Uh, in the 1740s, there was a great awakening on both sides of the Atlantic. It was in America, and it also was in England. And George Whitfield was one of the main instruments that God used. He was a tremendous gospel preacher. Thousands were converted uh, under his ministry. And i got to be honest with you, the guy wasn't much to look at, okay? And God usually picks people that aren't much to look at. I mean, here, here's your example. He had severely crossed eyes. He was overweight. He wore a really white... A powdered wig and, and a lot of young people that were rebellious made fun of him. Okay, He didn't care though. He was very magnanimous. He kept preaching to open crowds of up to 30,000 and people would fall under the spell of the gospel and be converted and come to Christ. When he came to a place um, in England that was called Rotherham, it was in central England, he encountered opposition from a group of young hooligans, ruffians, rebels, and there was a club called the Hellfire Club. Now, Whitfield came from a holy club with the Wesleys. So this club was trying to counter that, and they called themselves the Hellfire Club. And their leader was a man named John Thorpe. And he was opposed to everything holy. He hated God. He hated religion. He hated Christianity. And he especially hated George Whitfield. And so he was a leader of this group, and they would go around mocking Whitfield, opposing all of his ministries, heckling, probably throwing, you know, throwing things at him to, to distract him. And one night they were all in a pub together and somebody said, hey, do an impersonation of Whitfield, Locke. And they said, in fact, let's have a contest. Whoever does the best impersonation wins. And, and we'll just get a, somebody get a Bible and we'll open up to a verse and whatever the verse is, you've got to be Whitfield and preach on it. Well, apparently Thorpe was pretty good at impersonations of Whitfield. He knew all his mannerisms, all his gestures, and so as the beer freely flowed, he said, I want to go last. He was the fourth one. All the other three people went, and then John Thorpe stood up on a table, 
he grabbed the Bible, he crossed his eyes, and he said, I shall beat you all. And he opened the Bible to Luke chapter 13, verse 2, and he read this passage. And you know what that passage says? It says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I want to read to you, this is what George Whitfield's biographer, this is, you know, we all hear stories and they're legendary and embellished. This is legit, okay? It's documented. George Whitfield's biographer, John Gillies, said this. His mind, this is when Thorpe opened it up and read that verse out loud and was about to mock George Whitfield. His mind was affected in a very extraordinary manner. The sharpest pangs of conviction now seized him, and conscience denounced tremendous vengeance upon his soul. In a moment, he was favored with a clear view of his subject, and he preached a message on that passage from Luke chapter 13, verse 2, and they said you could have heard a pin drop in the pub. And Thorpe would later say when he read that text out loud, it so penetrated his heart that his hair stood up. And he felt like electricity and energy flow through his body. He didn't do anything crazy. He just felt like he had a clear understanding of what the passage meant. And he preached it. And you know what? He was saved. He sat down when he was finished. And tears flowed from his eyes. And he gave his life to Christ. And he became one of the most effective evangelists in that city. Because he had first-hand testimony of how powerful the Word of God is. And it can penetrate anybody's hard hearts no matter who they are. Isn't that incredible? The Word of God is living, and it's active, and it's effective, and it's sharp. It's able to penetrate and slice open the hardest hearts, and it often does. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he was a terrorist, drug Christians out of their house, had them executed. Manasseh in the Old Testament, one of the worst pagan kings in the history of Israel, and he came to know God through the prophet's testimony, through the Word of God. It's incredible, and things, listen, things have not changed. Well, those are the first two points, and I promise we're going to scoot through this last one. We need a power. We need precision. And, you know, this is, this is a little bit of a warning. This passage is. It's saying, look, there are sins in your life. There are weaknesses in your life. You need to see where they are so that you can, you can be strengthened, so you can be healed, so that God will grant you repentance. So how do you do that? What do you do? So the Bible has just sliced you wide open and you feel terrible. You feel convicted. Because that's what the Bible does at times when you need it. Do you stay there? My friend Larry Kirk from Christ Community Church has this really, um, I think, powerful analogy that, he, that will be very familiar to anybody that goes to his church. Jamie, you've probably, your family's probably heard it a lot. He talks about how the beauty of Jesus and the power of the gospel are like music. Okay, And the Christian life of obedience is like a dance. No, I'm not going to dance for you, but you get the idea. You know? Have you ever seen a spaghetti western? And somebody's saying, dance, partner. And they're like, no, I'm not going to dance. And what do they do? They pull out their pistol and, doo, doo, and they're dancing, but they're not happy, right? Well, listen, the Christian life is supposed to be a willing dance, a joyful dance, a dance of liberation and freedom. And so many times, I think Christians forget the power, the music. They're trying to dance to, to, to music that's ugly and that's hideous. And it's forced, it's plastic, it's disingenuous. It's a terrible way to live your life. I used to live my life that way because I forgot the music of the gospel. I stopped my ears to it. Um, so when we fall under, the, we fall under the, the power and the influence of the Bible, we're sliced open, we're out of step, right? That's what happens. You're not dancing because there's something wrong in your life. You're out of step, you're off beat. 
You need to correct that. What do you do? Well, the Bible slices you a little bit right here. That's the ministry that Hebrews 4 is talking about. But do you notice it doesn't leave you there? That's why I really believe this is a surgical procedure that it's talking about. Because look at verse 14. You're sliced. You're wounded. What do you do next? Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us turn then with confidence, verse 16, and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let me ask you a question. Does that encourage you? You don't have to stay sliced open on the table. That's not the goal. Your goal in going to a hospital is not to stay there, not to bleed out. It's to find help from a skilled surgeon and to be released, to have your paper signed, you know? They always lie to you and say, yeah, the doctor's getting your paper, you're about to be discharged. Yeah, right, tomorrow. No, you want to be discharged. You want to go to the high priest and find grace and help. And Jesus, Jesus welcomes us. He does. He welcomes us to come. This, this person is not sent to a self-help book or a library. And so often, don't we do that? When you really need help in your life, you're facing a crisis or you're crushed. Now, guys, I really I want to get in your kitchen a little bit. What do we do so often? Well, we got a friend that can encourage us, and that's great. Cannot overestimate the, the, the value and the need of Christian community. Um, or I'll go to Facebook, or I'll go to the internet, or I'll email, or I'll call, or I'll go, I got this book, or I'll listen to this music. Those are wonderful means of grace that God has given us. But they're second, third, and fourth. The first one is this. Go to the Word of God and go to the high priest. He understands you. He can sympathize with your weakness. And there's a throne of grace there. It's not a throne of judgment. A throne of judgment's been emptied. We can have confidence. That's why this is, I don't think... The people that preach this and stop short of verse 14, man, I think they sold their audience short. This is a, there's a high priest waiting to, to bring healing, and we can come into his presence with confidence. A.W. Pink says this, If the question be asked, what hope have we poor sinners got of entering into God's rest? The answer is because Christ, our high priest, has already entered heaven. And we also must do so in and by him. And that's why one of the roles that Scripture should play in all of, our life, all of our lives is twofold. One, to expose our sin, and two, to point us to Christ. Expose our sin, show us ways that we're out of step with the gospel, with the music, and two, point us back to Christ so we can hear the music again. I love that analogy, and you can tell Larry I stole it from him today, Jamie, okay? Tim Keller said, I studied the Bible before I became a Christian. When I went through confirmation classes in my church, I had to memorize Scripture. But during college, the Bible came alive in a way that was hard to describe. The best way I can put it is that before the change, I poured over the Bible, questioning and analyzing it. But after the change, it was as if the Bible, or maybe someone through the Bible, began pouring over me, questioning and analyzing me. Do you hear that? It's sharp. It penetrates. It discerns. It's able to slice through. And since we know all of those things, I want to ask you a question as a Christian. And here's the next slide. Does anything improve in your spiritual life with, with neglect? Does anything? Can you think of anything in your life that gets better by neglecting it? Your marriage? Your parenting? Your health? Your job? Your house? Your garden? Your yard? Look at that. No, the, therm, the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, says if you leave something alone, it gets worse and worse, not better and better, which is why evolution's foolish in my mind, because it says we get better and better and we actually get worse and worse, right? 
So let me ask you this. If we neglect the Bible, how can we even think that we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? The Bible says we behold what we become. So if, we're, if we want to become like Jesus and we know we have this effective, living, powerful, energetic resource, but we neglect it, is our spiritual life going to get better or is it going to get worse? We're going to get more bitter, more angry, get more distant from, from people, from God, from our family? Absolutely. Where do you turn for wisdom? Where do you turn for help? What is shaping and influencing your life? It ought to be the Word of God first and foremost. And I'll end with this. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, Amid the flood of dangerous reading, I plead for my master's book. I call upon you not to forget the book of the soul. Do not let newspapers, novels, and romances be read while the prophets and apostles be despised. Do not let the exciting and sensual swallow up your attention while the edifying and the sanctifying can find no place in your mind. He said that in the 1800s. If only J.C. Ryle would have known what this next slide shows. The thing that consumes most of our times. Can you show this next slide? That's a huge distraction for our, for our day, isn't it? It really consumes us. When, when God, the living, the active, the effective, the sharp, the personal, is here waiting on us to grow, to shape our lives, and to help us. Would you pray with me?